Hey there, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the letter of 2 Peter. And before we jump into that letter, just a heads up, April 2022 is the two-year birthday of the listener's commentary, and I'm super excited about that. I'm excited to see what God has done in the two years since we first launched the listener's commentary. A year ago, when the listener's commentary was just one year old, we were averaging around 1,100 to 1,200 downloads per month. And now, at two years old, we're averaging right around 10,000 downloads per month. And so the Lord has really brought about some incredible growth over the past year. And it's not the numbers that mean so much to me. It's that those numbers represent people, people who are listening to the Word of God and studying it and whose lives are being rooted in it because that's what matters more than anything else. As Psalm 1 says, a life rooted in the Word of God is a flourishing life. And so super stoked to see that, praying that the Lord just continues to open up doors for that. But here's why I bring that up before we jump into the content of this episode. Episode. Uh, because it is the two-year birthday of the listener's commentary, I thought, man, it would be fun to celebrate together in this way. If you have been thinking about jumping on board and becoming a financial supporter of this ministry, we are a crowdfunded ministry after all, then what I would like to do to say thanks for that in honor of our two-year birthday is I'd like to give you free access to the listener's commentary study hub. So if you've ever wanted more than the audio, notes, charts, special studies, pictures, uh, background data, and anything else I can keep adding to it, I am building out this study hub. It's live and it's available for you. And so if you set up a monthly recurring donation during the month of April 2022, I will give you free access to the listener's commentary study hub. So check that out. And if you're already a supporter of the ministry, God bless you. Thanks a ton for your support. All right, in this recording, we are going to be jumping into 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. In the preceding paragraph, just to set this in context, we really had the opening statement of the letter, and it was a statement about what God had done for them, and then a call to live really live in light of that, live out what God had done. We said that New Testament Christian living is consistently framed up with the idea of live who you are. And so here in 2 Peter, right at the outset, Peter had said, God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. God has fulfilled his magnificent and precious promises to you. God freed them from the corruption and made them sharers in his divine nature. So then Peter says, make every effort to live this out by putting on the virtues of God's very own character. So that's the opening paragraph to the letter. Now here in the section where we're looking at in this recording, in the first bit of that in 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 12 through 15, Peter really states his purpose in writing to them. And then in the following paragraph out of that, 16 through 21, he gives the reason why it's so important that they listen to him and remember what he's taught them. So that's where we're at, all right? And so first, let's look at Peter's goal or purpose in writing to them in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Peter says this, Therefore, verse 12, in other words, Therefore, is a statement of conclusion based on everything he said. So based on how important it is that you live out who you are, based on the fact that when you do that, you have this warm, rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of Jesus. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, 
even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. So Peter calls this letter a reminder. I'm writing to remind you of these things. I'll always be ready to do that, he says, even though you know it. They know the truth. They're establishing the truth. But he doesn't want them to forget it. Notice he says that he wants the truth which is present with you. He wants you to remain in it, never forget it. Now, in fact, Peter knows that his life is short. He's kind of at the end of his life. He knows they're dealing with some false teaching. So he wants to uh, remind them of these things so that they'll be able to remember them after he's gone. So look at verse 13 as he continues kind of delineating his purpose for them and for the letter. He says, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So this letter is a reminder. He wants them to be established in the truth which is present with them. And he says, I consider that right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling. Literally, he says, as long as I'm in this tent. And that this idea of a tent was a common metaphor for this present body in contrast to eternal life and the eternal resurrection body. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses the same metaphor in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Here's what Paul says there. He says, For we know that if our earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this tent, we long to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Paul there is talking about his own body and the, the ultimate desire to have our eternal body and the eternal life that goes with it. So when Peter says his earthly dwelling here in verses 13 and 14, he's speaking about his physical body, uh, this present physical body that someday will give way to a new resurrected body, but not now. And so Peter says here about that, he says like, I know that the laying aside of my tent, my earthly body, is imminent, as also the Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And so in some sense, uh, Jesus had made it clear to him that he was about to dice him. He, he may be alluding to something, in fact, a lot of scholars think he is, something as general as what Jesus said to Peter after his resurrection in John chapter 21, verses 18 and 19. There, Jesus told him that Peter someday would die as a prisoner. Well, Peter is now a prisoner, and so he assumes that death is just around the corner. And so he may just be alluding to that. Maybe there's some other more um, immediate way that Jesus has made it clear to him. But Peter knows he, his life is short. He's about to die. And so in view of that, he's reminding them of some really key things they need to know, particularly in the face of the false teaching that is swirling around them. In fact, Peter wants to be sure that they can recall the lessons of this letter and other things he taught them after he's gone. Look at verse 15. He says, And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So that's what motivated Peter to write. That's the goal of the letter. Peter is writing to remind him of the truth he taught them, to remind him of the truth they know. He's doing it in view of the fact his life is about to come to an end. And he wants them to recall 
uh, what he teaches them here and what he's taught them before after he's gone. Now, after he says that in verses 16 through 21, Peter gives the reason why it's so important that they listen to him, why it's so important they remember what he's taught them. And he, he states it basically saying that, especially in view of the false teaching that is swirling around them and the misunderstanding of the truth or the skepticism towards it, you need to remember this stuff. So Peter says it's important they remember his words because he and his fellow apostles were eyewitnesses to Jesus and because scripture is trustworthy. That's the two reasons he's going to give in verses 16 through 21. So his teaching combined with scripture is true and trustworthy. You got to remember it. Don't forget it. Here's what he says. Look at verse 16. He says, for. So for is a logical connection with the preceding. I'm stating these things as a reminder. I'm stating them so that you can remember them. Here's why. For. And he's going to explain why. All right. Here's why it matters so much that they pay attention to Peter's words and remember them. For. We didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Notice he says we didn't follow cleverly devised tales, literally sophisticated myths. We weren't making stuff up. We weren't passing on like sophisticated myths to you uh, about a resurrected Messiah or anything like that. No, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And the we here is Peter and his fellow apostles. And specifically, he references um, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there there's some difficulty with that phrase. Um, the reason it's difficult is because everything Peter says, like we're eyewitnesses of his majesty, the example of Jesus coming that Peter's going to give in verses 17 and 18 is a specific event from the life of Jesus recorded in the gospels. So everything in 16 through 18 revolves around Jesus' first coming. Um, and so it would make good sense of the coming of our Lord Jesus here, if it referred to Jesus' incarnation, his first coming, if you will. That would flow nicely with everything Peter says in the context and with the example of the transfiguration in verses 17 and 18. But the word he uses for coming is the word parousia in Greek, um, which has actually been kind of imported into English as parousia, and it's consistently used in the New Testament to refer to Jesus' second coming, his return. And we do know from later in 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, that one of the false notions Peter combats in this letter is skepticism about Jesus' return. So, uh, a lot of commentators, a lot of scholars, in view of the common usage of the word parousia, um, a lot of scholars conclude, well, it's got to be talking about the second coming here. But then that causes a lot of kind of trickiness. Well, how in the world is it about the second coming here when everything around it is about the first coming? And then so scholars then kind of wrestle with that. I, I just think we should take it in the most straightforward way reading. Uh, and that is that I think it makes good sense to see it as referring to Jesus' first coming, and then to see the example in verses 17 and 18, the transfiguration, as just an example of really a powerful moment in Jesus' first coming. It just seems like that makes a whole lot more sense of the immediate context. The only argument against seeing it 
as referring to the first coming is that typically in the New Testament, the word parousia is used of Jesus' second coming. But the word itself was regularly used outside of the New Testament for the arrival or the visitation of kings or emperors or noblemen or rulers. Like when a emperor or a nobleman would come to a city, it was spoken of as his parousia, his visit, his visitation, his arrival. And so I see no reason why, even though more often than not, the New Testament uses it to refer to Jesus' second coming, there's just no reason why in this case it couldn't refer here to Jesus' first coming, especially since Peter's talking about being eyewitnesses of that coming. Like, that's what he says. We didn't make up tales, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter hasn't been an eyewitness of his second coming yet because it hasn't happened yet. The only coming to which he's been an eyewitness is Jesus' first coming. And so if he finishes the thought by saying we were eyewitnesses of that coming, well, what's that talking about? It's talking about the second coming. And as I noted, a lot of scholars see it as referring to the second coming, but when they do that, then they do all sorts of kind of wrangling to try to figure out, well, how could it be about the second coming? How could Peter be an eyewitness of that? How could the transfiguration example in verses 17 and 18, maybe it points in some sort of way towards the power of the second coming. I'm like, well, let's just read it in the most natural way. Um, and the most natural way is that the, we're talking about the first coming of Jesus. And that whole difficulty about trying to figure out how the second coming fits into the context is just eliminated if we just see it as referring to what it appears at first glance to refer to. We were eyewitnesses when Jesus came. The main point, of course, is that Peter and the other apostles then were eyewitnesses to Jesus. And this is what gives them credibility. This is what makes them trustworthy to listen to. And so Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his coming, his arrival. And then Peter recounts this example, this key moment, a moment of power and confirmation of who Jesus was at his first coming. And that moment Peter recounts is the transfiguration. You can read about that event in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you would like. It's found in Matthew 17 or Mark chapter 9 or Luke chapter 9. And in the account, what happens is Jesus goes up on a mountain with Peter, with James, and with John. And when Jesus is on the mountain, his appearance is changed, and he begins to radiate with God's glory. Then Moses and Elijah appear together with Jesus, and they discuss what lies ahead for Jesus. The way Luke puts it, as they discuss his exodus, his departure, that's going to be accomplished in Jerusalem. And then a cloud appears, and God speaks from the cloud, and the words he speaks are the words that Peter recalls here in 2 Peter verses 17 and 18. So here's the way Peter recalls the moment here. Verse 17, he says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such a declaration as this was made to him by the majestic glory. That's all just Peter's way of talking about what happened on that mountain and the cloud overshadowing them with the majestic glory, with like the very Shekinah glory of God in the cloud. And so God then speaks from the cloud, and this is what he says. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this declaration made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter recalls this transfiguration moment when they were on the mountain and God spoke these words and affirmed Jesus' identity as his son, as Messiah, as the royal king. 
And notice that Peter actually says, when we were with him on the holy mountain, that phrase, holy hill or holy mountain, actually stands out um, because it may be an allusion to Psalm chapter 2. The words that God speaks here on the mountain, this is my beloved son with whom I am pleased, those words are actually an allusion to Psalm chapter 2, and it mentions the holy mountain. Listen to Psalm 2, 6 and 7. It says this, But as for me, God speaking, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so there's a good chance that Peter uses the phrase holy mountain here in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 18, because Peter knows that Psalm 2 is the background to the transfiguration. And so he's just sort of echoing the description or the way it's stated in Psalm chapter 2. Now, the main point of all of this, verses 16 through 18, the main point is that Peter and the other apostles were not making stuff up. They didn't pass on sophisticated myths. They were passing on real history, real events, events to which, in fact, they were eyewitnesses, even remarkable events like this moment when Jesus was transfigured and God spoke from heaven, affirming his identity as his son and Messiah and king. That's why Peter's trustworthy. That's why it's so important that he write this reminder to them before he dies and that they can recall his teaching after he's gone. Now, not only that, Peter goes on then in verse 19 through 21 to say that his eyewitness testimony confirms the prophetic word. And the prophetic word is trustworthy because it's not mere human words, but it's the word inspired by God's very own spirit. That's the point of verses 19 through 21. So let me just walk down through these verses so we can hear what Peter has to say. He says, and so we have... The we there is likely addressing Peter and his readers. Up above, it was likely Peter and the apostles, right? But he's shifted now directly addressing the readers. And so now it's like, so we, me and you, Peter and his readers, um, we have, and notice what he says they have, and we have the prophetic word made more sure. What's the prophetic word? Well, my guess is that at bare minimum, Peter means all the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah and who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. But he may mean more than that. He may actually be following Jesus's lead and have the entire Old Testament in mind. Let me tell you what I mean by that. If you remember, after his resurrection, Luke chapter 24, there's these two men walking on the road to Emmaus And Jesus suddenly appears to them, but they don't know it's Jesus. And they have this long conversation. And then Jesus goes through the entire Old Testament while they're walking, leading them on a Bible study through the Old Testament, showing them that everything is about him. And so Luke 24, verse 27 says this, Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them the things written about him in all the scriptures. And so Peter may be following Jesus' lead, right? Like like all those Old Testament scriptures point towards Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, Philo, a first century Jewish writer, uses this very phrase, the prophetic word, to refer to the whole Old Testament. 
So what's the prophetic word? Well, at minimum, it's all the ways that the Old Testament had prophecies pointing towards the Messiah and what the Messiah would do. But probably it's much broader than that, and it just refers to the Old Testament scriptures that found their culmination in Jesus as Messiah. And so he says, we have the prophetic word made more sure. What does it mean to be made more sure? Well, that idea is confirmed, made certain. The idea is that the coming of Jesus and the words spoken at his transfiguration that Peter just recalled certified who Jesus was and confirmed the Old Testament promises about him. So Peter tells them that his eyewitness testimony of Jesus and of that event on the mountain confirms the Old Testament scriptures about the Messiah and that it's important that they pay attention to the Old Testament, to the prophetic word, to the message about Jesus found in those scriptures. And so he says, we have the prophetic word made more sure, notice, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. And so Peter's really saying that you need to pay attention to the scriptures. You need to pay attention to the prophetic word to make sure that you know what's true and right in this present time. It's like a lamp, in fact, a lamp shining in a dark place. And so read and heed the scriptures because they're light. Now, the phrase in the middle of that that we just want to take a brief moment to look at is until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. What exactly is that talking about? Well, it's not 100% clear what Peter has in mind. Some who still want to see the second coming all throughout this section uh, say, oh, Revelation 22, 16 refers to Jesus as the morning star. And so this is um, talking about when Jesus returns. And I suppose that could be possible, except for the problem of the morning star arises in your hearts. Like Jesus' second coming isn't in your heart. It's in reality. It's in the real world. So if we take this as referring to the second coming, then, man, I don't know how you explain the in your heart bit. So I just don't think that's what Peter has in mind here. Um, perhaps there's more to Peter's exact meaning than this, but the, the simplest explanation is Peter is just using the same kind of analogy that is being used in Paul's writings, in the Apostle John's writings, all throughout the New Testament, to compare the world as darkness, which Peter just said, right? Like the lamp shining in a dark place, and he means the world is full of darkness. And so when he talks about the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, he's using that picture similar to what Paul uses, say, in Ephesians chapter 5, of that time is shifting and there is going to come an end point when all darkness is going to be removed. And so, in that sense, perhaps, it looks forward to the final day. But what it simply means is, is just this analogy of darkness and light. Pay attention to the scriptures and do so until the new day fully dawns and all darkness is gone forever. And then Peter goes on to emphasize the reliability and trustworthiness of scripture. He says in verse 20, but know this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made 
by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the first thing to take note of is he refers to no prophecy of Scripture, or in verse 21, no prophecy. And immediately when we hear that, the first thing we tend to think of is maybe the prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets, or maybe even more specifically, we think of, oh, those future telling moments in the prophetic books where they're making a prophecy about what's to happen in the future. But the Old Testament used that word prophecy much more broadly just to speak of God's word. And so there may be an element of Uh, forward-looking moments in the Old Testament scriptures, looking forward to the time of the Messiah. There may be that, uh, but it's primarily talking just about the words of God in the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, in the Hebrew arrangement of the Old Testament, what's known as, if you will, the Tanakh for uh, the T, the N, and the K, those three consonants make up Tanakh. And that's just the Hebrew way they would describe their scriptures. And in that, you have a three-part division, Torah, T, uh, Nevi'im, the N, prophets, and Ketuvim, writings, right? Well, the prophets were much a, a much bigger category than they are in the English Bible. In fact, they begin with Joshua, and they include Judges, Samuel, Kings, Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So they include all of what we would call prophets, plus uh, some history books, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And that's the prophets. And so it's a bigger category than what we say, because for them it refers to more just God's word in general. So that's the first thing to know. We're talking really about Um, the Old Testament scriptures in general may be a a nod toward some of the prophetic utterances within them, but primarily the things written down as Old Testament scripture. And so he says, no prophecy of scripture becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation. And that phrase is a little bit ambiguous in the original. There are really two options for how to understand that phrase becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation. The first option is, has to do more with the origin of scripture or the origin of a prophecy of scripture. Where did it come from? The second option has to do with the use of it or the interpretation of it. So the translation that I'm reading from here takes it in that second sense. Um, It should not be used for someone's personal interpretation. The idea is that scripture is not something that someone can make say whatever they want it to say. That's how this translation has taken it, and that's a legitimate reading of the grammar for that phrase when it says, becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation means I don't get to twist scripture to make it say what I want. Other translations of this phrase will take it more in the first sense about the origin of scripture or prophecy of scripture. In other words, what the way to read it that way is that it has to do with that it didn't come about by the prophet's own ingenuity or own in ideas. The prophet didn't make that stuff up. So it, it's either about the prophet and where he got his ideas or the reader of the prophet and what he does with it when he reads it. And the fact is both ideas are true and both ideas um, grammatically work with the way this phrase is worded in the original Greek. 
But which one is more likely? Well, for that, I think we need to look at the context. And in view of verse 21, which explains the phrase, um, I think option number one is best. We're talking about where the prophet came up with the things they said and the things they wrote down. We're not talking about um, how the hearer or the reader of the prophet um, uses it. That's just not the focus here. And I say that because of what verse 21 says. Look at, look at verse 21. It explains it in terms of the origin. No prophet spoke on his own terms. Look at verse 21. It says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so verse 21 seems to clarify that ambiguous phrase in verse 20 uh, by saying that the prophet didn't make this stuff up. That's the idea of verse 21, that no prophet was actually just kind of doing this on his own, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. And so their words are God's words, and they spoke from God. All right, let's just summarize verses 19 through 21. And make sure we hear what Peter is saying. Here's what Peter's saying. He's saying that uh, his experience and the other apostles' eyewitness experience of Jesus confirms the prophetic words of Scripture about the coming of the Messiah and all that will entail. And thus, the readers of this letter need to pay close attention to Scripture. It's their light. And it's not the prophet's own ideas when they read the Old Testament Scriptures, but those Old Testament Writers were men moved by God. They spoke God's word by the Holy Spirit. And that's why it's so important they pay attention to those words of Scripture. And all of that is part of explaining why Peter is so diligent about reminding them of his teaching and why it's so important to Peter that he drives his teaching home for them and why he wants them to remember it after he's gone. Peter's word is trustworthy. Scripture is trustworthy, so they need to take it to heart. They need to embrace it and hold on to it. They need to remember it so that they can bring it to mind even after Peter is gone. And the reality is, so do we. With all the ideas and all the images about life that constantly bombard us in our world, on our news feeds and all of that, with all the partially true but still off base ideas about life, right? With all the nice sounding memes and pop psychology and self-help advice, which we post on our uh, Instagram or on our Twitter feed, all that stuff, right? like we're just bombarded with ideas and images and messages about life and about where the world is going, about how to respond to life. What Peter is saying to them is still important to us. We need to fill our mind with the words of Peter. We need to fill our minds with the words of the other apostles and their close associates. We need to fill our minds with the words of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the light that will guide us through the darkness of this world until the new day dawns and all things are made new.